If if you'd like to turn with me to the book of Numbers, we've just begun a a series in this book, this part of the Scriptures, so uh, Numbers chapter 1, and we're coming in at verse 44. If you're following in the Pew Bibles, that's page 134, page 134. And this is the Word of God. In the first part of the chapter, God has ordered or commanded a census to be taken uh, of all men 20 years old or more. And we're coming out of verse 44, which says, These were the men counted by Moses and Aaron and the 12 leaders of Israel, each one representing his family. All the Israelites, 20 years old or more, who were able to serve in Israel's army were counted according to their families. The total number was 603,550. The families of the tribe of Levi, however, were not counted along with the others. The Lord had said to Moses, you must not count the tribe of Levi or include them in the census of the other Levites or Israelites. Instead, appoint the Levites to be in charge of the tabernacle of the testimony over all its furnishings and everything belonging to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings. They are to take care of it and encamp around it. Whenever the tabernacle is to move, the Levites are to take it down. And whenever the tabernacle is to be set up, the Levites shall do it. Anyone else who goes near it shall be put to death. The Israelites are to set up their tents by divisions, each man in his own camp under his own standard. The Levites, however, are to set up their tents around the tabernacle of the testimony so that wrath will not fall on the Israelite community. The Levites are to be responsible for the care of the tabernacle of the testimony. The Israelites did all this just as the Lord commanded Moses. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, the Israelites are to camp around the tent of meeting some distance from it, each man under his standard with the banners of his family. And then the chapter goes on to say that on the east side, there would be the tribe on the camp of Judah and various others. And then in verse 10, on the south side would be the divisions of the camp of Reuben and some others. And then in verse uh, 17, the tent of meeting and the camp of the Levites would set out in the middle of the camps. On the western side, verse 18, will be the divisions of the camp of Ephraim and Manasseh, and Benjamin, and then finally, verse 25, on the north will be the divisions of the camp of Dan, and Asher, and Naphtali. And then reading down to verse 34, so the Israelites did everything the Lord commanded Moses. That is the way they encamped under their standards, and that is the way they set out, each with his clan and family. And may God bless his word to us. So the children of Israel, if you can put it this way, the children of Israel are in the in-between place. They have just come out, maybe about a year or so, they have come out of Egypt. They're no longer enslaved, but they are not yet in the promised land. The promised land is in the future sometime. And so this is the place where they are in between. It's a place of preparation, if you like. And this census, this counting is part of the preparation that God is leading his people into 
in preparation for the promised land. Uh, what we said a couple of weeks ago is that in this book of Numbers, what we're going to see is that as the Israelites go through the desert, the parallel for us is that we are also going through our own personal desert in this world of the world of flesh and the devil. And so the temptations and the thistles and the droughts and the snakes and all the, the difficulties that are coming at the children of Israel, we can say spiritually also are with us because we are in an in-between place. We have been rescued from Satan in Christ, but we have not yet fully been rescued from the presence of sin, which will come when Jesus returns. So we're in this place where the, the theologians say it's, the, it's between the now and the not yet. The kingdom has come now, Jesus is here now in our hearts, His reign is here now, but there's the not yet when His reign will be complete and He will banish sin. So we're saying in this in-between place, in this wilderness, this desert place, numbers can speak into our hearts. There are principles here that will help us to live for Christ. Today I've given this uh, message the overall title of uh, Count Us In, Count Us In. But underneath that, I've got three subheadings, three things that we see in chapters one and two that I believe are helpful and indeed speak to us and to our cultural moment. The first thing that we see here is order. God is a God of order. As this vast number of people under Moses' leadership encamp and move through the desert, God imposes some order on them based upon the divisions of the tribes and the clans. God commands that a census be taken, and we'll come to this later, but he also commands that Israel encamp in a certain pattern or order, and also whenever they're moving, they move in a certain order. Now, if you look at the screens, you'll see how this camp was laid out. Uh, you'll see on the eastern side, uh, and the eastern side is taken to be the, fo the, the front, or the, whenever the camp is moving, it's the, it, they move east, and the tabernacle faces east, where the sunrise comes. So you see Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. You might have expected Reuben, who was the firstborn, to be there, but he's not on the first. No, Judah is. And as we know, down the line, the Savior will come from the line of Judah. So maybe there's a significant placement there of Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. Uh, so they're on the, that side. Uh, on the, the southern side, you've got Reuben, Simeon, and Gad. On the northern side, you've got Dan, Asher, and Naphtali. And then on the western side, you have Benjamin, Manasseh, and Ephraim. Now, just to explain that Manasseh and Ephraim were the sons of Joseph, so there isn't a tribe of Joseph here as such. He is represented by two tribes, his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. The Levites are not counted in the outer camp. The Levites live in the inner camp around the tabernacle, and we were just reading about that. The Levites provide a kind of a protective boundary so that nobody else can kind of accidentally come into the, the tabernacle. So they are a protection or, or guards almost, if you like, to the tabernacle. So here we have this, this camp, and, and God has a very clear rule for the Levites. They are not to engage directly in any warfare, but they are responsible for the tabernacle, for its furnishings, 
the sacrifices, and so on. They are not only the protectors of the camp, they are also the mediators between God and the people. So this is the arrangement, this is the order that God has deemed. God likes order. He, want them, he wants them to be in this order even as they move from place to face, place in the, in the desert, and also whenever they're going into battle formation. Now you might say, well, what, you know, what has that got to do with us? What has that got to do with the church? Now, there's much that changes between the Old Testament and the New Testament in terms of, of um, rituals such as the sacrifices that were brought by the Levites. We don't have those sacrifices anymore. The priesthood and the tabernacle were fulfilled in Jesus Christ, so we don't have a, a priesthood to bring our sacrifices. We don't have a tabernacle or a temple in Jerusalem that we need to go to. All these things have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. However, there are aspects of this order that continue into the New Testament. God is a God of good order and governance. And in the New Testament, whenever Paul was establishing churches, in each place he established a plurality of elders for governance. And so oversight, pastoral oversight, leadership, governance was supplied by these elders. Within the Presbyterian church context, we have the sacraments of baptism and communion, which are overseen by the teaching elder, the minister. And so again, there is a, there is a good order there of, of the way things are done. Now, we've often said as High Kirk that we are a church that is not only a Presbyterian church, but it is also a church open to the Word and the Spirit, and to the spontaneity of the Spirit and how the Spirit leads. And so some people might say, you know, you're too, you're too orderly. We need to be more spontaneous, more open to the gifts of the Spirit, and so on. But I would also remind you that in the main passage, actually, in the New Testament where Paul discusses the gifts of the Spirit, and he talks about tongues, and he talks about prophecy, and he talks about healings, and so on. But right bang in the middle of all that, in 1 Corinthians 14 and 33, he says, God is not a God of disorder. He's a God of peace. So if there is a prophecy, it needs to be weighed by the leadership. If someone wants to, to give it a, a tongue, then it needs to be interpreted by someone else present. There needs to be order. In verse 40, he says, everything should be done in a fitting and an orderly way. Again, Paul says of the church in Colossae, I delight to see how orderly you are. There is no merit in chaos in a church. God is a God of order. We see that in His creation. Nature runs by certain laws. That's how we exist. That's how we're able to breathe and so on. There's the laws of gravity and so on that we, that we have to live by. So God wants all things done well, or as the Presbyterians often say, decently and in order. If I had a bit of spare time in my hands, I might write a book about order in church life. I call it Norman's Book of Order. I'm sure it'll be a big seller amongst nerds. Uh, but God is a God of order. He's not a God of chaos. Way back in Genesis 1, chapter 1 and verse 1, it talks about the, you know, the waters, the waters of chaos. The Spirit was brooding over these waters of chaos, and out of those waters, He brings order. Out of nothing, something. 
And so we find in the Old Testament, in the pattern that God has set out for His people here, but it continues, part of it continues into the New Testament, we see that our God is a God of order. The second thing we, we see is that as part of this order, we sense that His presence is encamped in the middle of all this order. God is there. The, the tabernacle representing the Lord is in the center of the camp. If we just put that uh, slide up again, thanks Stephen, we see that the yellow rectangle is the tabernacle right in the very center of the camp. Now, there's no surprises there because in ancient um, tribes and warfare and so on, the king's tent was usually in the center. That was the one protected. So, it was right in the, in the very center. So, where would we expect the tabernacle to be but in the center? And then around it, the brown rectangles we see are the Levites. We've got Moses, the priests, the Kohathites, the Merorites, the Gershonites, and they were there as mediators and protectors of the tabernacle. But in the middle, in the midst, as it were, dwells God Himself, the King of glory. And the Bible also tells us that there was a cloud of glory, there was a Shekinah glory that dwelt over this tabernacle, a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. God's presence was there. God was in the midst of them. And it was a vitally important tenet of Israelite belief that God needed to be in the center. Elsewhere, Moses says at one point, Lord, we dare not go up from this place unless you go with us. If they were to win wars, if they were to influence nations, then God needed to be in the very center. And whenever they ventured out without God's blessing, without God being in the center, they fell on their faces. They made a mess of things. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we touched on the fact that God speaks today. He's a living, speaking God. And the main way He speaks is through His Word. And so we need to make that Word central, a central part of our lives. Psalm 119 and 11 says, I have hidden your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Does the Word of God hold a central place in your life? Now, you might say, well, of course it does. But what does that look like practically? And again, a couple of weeks ago, I encouraged us to make our Bible reading a daily central practice of our hearts. Later we will sing, be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Is the Lord's vision our vision? Is He mediating His vision to us through the daily reading of God's Word? Word and Spirit go together. Word and Spirit tabernacle in us and change us and lead us and influence us. There was no one more full of the Spirit than Jesus. And when He was led by the Spirit into the desert, and there was 40 days and 40 nights of fasting and testing, every time Satan came to Him, Jesus was able to respond with the Word that He had hidden in His heart. Even when Satan tried to deceive Him, Jesus was able to say, but the Word of God says, the Word of God says, the Word of God says. The Word of God was central in His life. Many years ago, the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said this, 
Oh, that you and I might get into the very heart of the Word of God and get that Word into ourselves. As I have seen the silkworm eat into the leaf and consume it, so ought we to do with the Word of the Lord. Not crawl over its surface, but eat right into it till we have taken it into our inmost parts. It is idle merely to let the eye glance over the words or to recollect the poetical expressions or the historic facts. It is blessed to eat into the very soul of the Bible until you even come to talk in scriptural language. Your very style is fashioned upon scriptural models and your spirit is flavored with the words of the Lord. And then Spurgeon goes on to say, I would quote John Bunyan as an instance of what I mean. Read anything of his and you will see that it's almost like reading the Bible itself. He has read it till his very soul was saturated with Scripture. And though his writings are charmingly full of poetry, yet he is continually making us feel and say, why this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere and his blood is bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. So as we seek God privately, as we put Jesus and God at the center of our camp, He begins to change us, to speak to us, to influence us, to mold us. And if he does that in the private means of grace, then he also does it in the public means of grace as we gather as church. The writer to Hebrews says, do not forsake the gathering together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day of Christ returning. So where is God? Where is his presence? Is he central in the camp? Is he central in your family? Is he central in the home? Is he central in your life? In Numbers, we see this paradox of God. We see his imminence, his closeness, but we also see his transcendence, his otherness, his holiness. Closeness and holiness. Only the Levites could touch the holy things. Only Moses and then Aaron could enter the holy place and bring the sacrifices. In verse 51 it says, anyone who is not a Levite who comes close is put to death. So God is in the middle of the camp. He's close to them. But also he is holy, holy, holy. And usually when modern eyes are reading this, we kinda, we're taken aback when it says, and if anyone touches these articles, the tabernacle, they will be put to death. We're taken aback by that because we're not used to that. But we've got to hold these two things in balance and intention, the imminence, the closeness, the presence of Jesus amongst us, but also the holiness of a God who cannot be looked upon or touched. God still requires sacrifice for sin. And Jesus is that sacrifice. We cannot approach the holy of holies through our works, our traditions, our rituals. All of these things are good, but we only plead the name of Jesus. It is through Jesus Christ that we can enter the holy of holies today. So as we look at this camp, 
this Israelite camp for so many years ago, centuries ago. We say, how is that relevant to us? But it is relevant. Order continues in the church. Good governance continues in the church. The presence of God continues via the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit now tabernacles in our hearts. But still we don't take God for granted. And then thirdly and finally, we see commitment. To go back to this command of Moses or to Moses to count the men who are aged 20 and over. In Bible days, a census was conducted usually for two reasons, or one of two reasons. One reason was for tax purposes, that the, the king, the governor, wants to know how many people he has and how to tax them and so on. But there's no tax here, there's no reason to tax the people. So the other second reason a census was usually undertaken was for uh, warfare purposes, to count how many was in the army, count your forces. So we think this is the reason why God has said to Moses, count all the men aged over 20, because he is preparing them. He is forming an army. He's getting them into shape so that as they approach Canaan, they're ready to take the promised land. In chapter 1, verse 3, this command to count uh, includes taking one man from each tribe, each the head of his family, and they are to help the count. In counting in tribes and moving forward in battle formation in tribes, this makes good sense. It creates a sense of interdependence. It means that when you're fighting, you will be fighting alongside a brother or an uncle or a father or a son. And so there is this cementing of the relationship as you go to fight. So they were fighting not only for God's glory, they were fighting not only for Israel, they were fighting for their tribe, they were fighting for their clan, they were fighting for their family. During this past week, I was uh, taking a a school assembly uh, in one of the local primary schools, and I happened to ask the principal if they had had many Ukrainian families who had uh, become members of the school. And she said, well, quite a few, really. And she says, in fact, I was just talking to one of the parents, one of the, the mother uh, of the children, and she said just that week, uh, her and the children had bid farewell to her husband and their father because he was heading to the front line and to fight Russia. And she wasn't quite sure if that would be the last time she would see him. And the principal just said, it really brought it home to me, just the sacrifice, the cost of what is really happening. It seems so remote, it's on the other side of the world, but here was a family. They weren't sure whether they would see their father or her husband again. Moses was being asked to stand up. He was asking the the, the family members to stand up and be counted and to be in readiness and in preparation for a war to take the promised land, to move in against the Canaanites. The census is speaking about commitment to the tribe, to the people of God, and to the vision of what God is asking them to do. They had been in the land of Egypt as slaves, but now they were set free. But they were set free to something. They were set free not just to wander around the wilderness, but to go into the promised land that God had for them. Someone has said this, this portrait of a closely knit Israelite community appears in stark contrast to the splintered culture 
and increasing individualism of the contemporary scene, where we see people more likely to put their own interests above those of the common good. Someone else writes, many today don't want to stand up and be counted as part of any particular church with the obligations and the benefits that come with it. The church, you see, is like an army. It needs discipline, it needs order, but it also needs commitment. It needs people to stand up and say, I'll be counted, I'm, I'm in, count me in. And so here's the challenge of this passage for me and for you. Are you committed? Can you be counted on in your life group? Can you be counted on on a serving rota? Can you be counted on at a prayer meeting? Can you be counted on at the most basic level of weekly attendance at church to be here Sunday by Sunday by Sunday to encourage your brothers and sisters in Christ? No army can function if people are going AWOL, absent without leave. No church army can function either if people are not willing to commit and stand up and be counted. In chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, the Israelites are to camp around the tent of meeting some distance from it, each man under his standard with the banners of his family. Now, the theologians aren't quite sure what these standards or these banners look like. They suspect that each tribe had a color, uh, and those colors might be a reflection of the different stones, the precious gems that were on the, the, the breast uh, plate of the, the high priest. We're not sure. But the point was that each family, each man, each, each clan was standing with their standard saying, we are in, we are here, we are up for this. And, and in that same sense, today, is your clan, is your family saying, we are here, we're in, we're up for this, because it is a fight, it's warfare out there. Paul in Ephesians 6 talks in terms of war language. He says, put on the helmet of righteousness, or the helmet of um, faith, the, the breastplate of righteousness, the sword of the Spirit, the, the, the shoes of, of peace, the belt of truth. Put on these elements of armor because we are fighting a, a battle today against the world, the flesh, and the devil. So let's be an orderly, presence-driven, committed family of believers, committed to one another as we travel through the desert, seeking God's face and His will for us. Let's just pray as we ask God to speak by His Spirit to our hearts and maybe to convict us in one of these three headings. Are we orderly? Have we making that, made that commitment to be under a church, under the authority of leadership, moving forward as a disciplined body of faith? Are we presence-driven in our daily lives, making sure that the Word of God is central 
that we're inviting the Holy Spirit to guide us each day? Are we committed? Committed to Jesus and committed to our brothers and sisters who sit around us to the north and the south, to the east and to the west? Are we prepared to be counted, to be counted as part of the Lord's army, moving in His grace and in His love and in His power? Come, Holy Spirit, imprint these values upon our hearts for your glory, for our good, we pray. And God's people said, amen.